This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I'll admit I feel a little bit sorry for myself this morning, and I'll just tell you why. The kids, they get to go into the Family Life Center, and they're going to have pancakes and sausage. And here I am, stuck with you, and, um, and you're stuck with me, so... Uh, but we'll make the best of it. Actually, this is just an amazing time, and I love, I love sharing with you what God has uh, spoken to me about throughout the week, but uh, we're going to just dig in, as Jim said. And I don't know what your favorite Christmas song is. Uh, mine, at least, when it comes to the non-spiritual Christmas songs, would be, Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. But unfortunately, around here, all we seem to have is wind, and so we probably just, just ought to change the words to let it blow, let it blow, let it blow, and just leave it right there. But, but anyway, this past week, I was doing some research into America's favorite Christmas songs, and, and I was looking for the rank of the song that will kind of push us, propel us into our lesson today. And, and the internet, if, if you've ever looked, has a thousand different sites, uh, probably literally a thousand different sites that give their top Christmas songs. And and of course, opinions vary greatly, but I was surprised as to what several said was the top Christmas song. You want to know what that was, according to a few sources? The top Christmas song, according to some sources, was the Christmas song, which, uh, of course, more commonly known to us, uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And the second most popular song was have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which I think is pretty lame for a, a top two song. Another notable Christmas song, um, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, uh, eighth. I think that should have been higher. Uh, and then this one really surprised me, but where do you think that the song Oh Holy Night came in? I mean, I mean to me, in my opinion, uh, my very humble but accurate opinion um, I, I think that O Holy Night is, is a top, top song, at least top two or three or four song, but it came in at number 22. That's just a dirty shame, I'm sorry. But, uh, but, but the one that I want to highlight today is, is, is one that came in at number 18, and, and frankly, this is not my favorite Christmas song. It's okay, I don't hate it. I don't necessarily love it either. The, the tune, in my opinion, is kind of boring, but, but the words are good, and we need to sing it. Number 18 on the chart of the most popular Christmas songs is Silent Night. Well, of course, when we sing it here in Cedar County, we add another syllable, and we say Silent Night. Now, as, as some of you may know, this tune was, was composed in 1818 by uh, a man named, named Franz Gruber from Austria. Uh, the lyrics were written by a young priest named Father Joseph Moore, and, and this song that Gruber and Moore comboed on would make its way across the ocean, weave its way into the fabric of our American Christmas traditions. But really, when you look at the story that leads up to that, that first Christmas, it, it's not just about a silent night. Rather, it includes over 400 years of silent nights. Now, to lead us into this lesson, let me give you a quick overview of the Bible that 
Many of you, if you were raised in church, you already know. It doesn't hurt to be reminded, however, of the basics. The Bible is separated into two divisions. You have the Old Testament, which is made up of how many books? Anybody? The Old Testament, 39 books. And within those 39 books, you have five different sections. You have the law, the history, wisdom, or also known as, 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 as poetry. And then you have major and minor prophets. And then the other major division of the Bible is called the New Testament, which has how many books? 27. And they're divided into the categories of the Gospels, the, the, the book of Acts, um, the, the Pauline epistles, or in other words, the, the epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote, and then you've got the, the general epistles, and then you've got prophecy, which is the book of Revelation. So the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by approximately 40 different authors spanning a period of about 1,500 years. The Old Testament begins with the book of Genesis, ends with the book of Malachi, or some say the Italian prophet Malachi, but it's actually Malachi. The New Testament begins with the book of Matthew, and even though that probably wasn't the the, the first book uh, in, in chronological order, but it begins with the book of Matthew, ends with the book of Revelation. Now, to take us into our study, I, I want to go back to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi has four very short chapters, was written around 450 B.C. But when it comes to Malachi and the end of the Old Testament, here's what it just kind of appeared to me as I was studying this. It appears that you are cruising along highway speed, But when you come to the fourth chapter of Malachi, all of a sudden the brakes are locked up and Malachi and the Old Testament come to a screeching halt. Just like that. No no warning. No no slowdown. In in fact, let me read the last two verses of the Old Testament. Uh, This would be Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Look. I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's it. The Old Testament is over. No no preparing the reader. No, No statement like pastors make, well, to wrap things up or, and in conclusion... Of course, you know whenever a pastor says, and in conclusion, you know what it means? Absolutely nothing. But but there's none of that. The Old Testament stops on a dime. Well, what happens then? Well, well, let's find out. You know, if you have your Bibles open to the last chapter of the book of Malachi, and after that that sudden stop, you, you you turn to the next page, and unless you have a study Bible, if you just got a regular Bible like I do right here, what, uh, what, what do you see? After the Old Testament ends, there's a blank page right there. And then across there, you got, uh, you, you got the title page, um, you know, the beginning of the New Testament, which sometimes leads people to think that as soon as the Old Testament is over, the New Testament begins, That's not the case. You know, as we finish the Old Testament, we need to realize that 
that the blank page dividing the Old Testament and the New Testament represents not just a day, not just a month, not even a year. It represents over 400 years. But, but something else. It not only represents 400 years, but it, it represents 400 years of silence. As the curtain draws to a close on the Old Testament, God appears to go silent. Now, I'm sure God spoke to people individually, but there are no prophets that spoke on behalf of God. There are no scriptures inspired by God written down by scribes. It appears that there is total and complete silence, not just a silent night, but rather 400 years of silent nights. So question for you, where did God go for 400 years? I mean, did he get so fed up with this sin-infested world that he walked away and said, I'm done? But then finally, after four centuries, he relented and decided to reconnect with mankind again, and he breaks the silence, and so he sent his son Jesus. Is, is that what happened? And, and really, this is a pretty important question, and, and here's why, because we've all had our own seasons of silent nights, seasons where it appears that, that God has gone silent and, and He's quit speaking to us, seasons where we no longer feel His presence, seasons where we're just stumbling our way through the darkness of the night. And so what God was doing during those 400 years of silent nights might give us some insight in what he is doing during those seasons of silence in our own lives. So today, with God's help, and I emphasize that, with God's help, because this is bigger than I am, but we want to work through two questions. Question number one, what was God doing during the 400 years of silence? And question number two, what are we supposed to do during our own times of silence? And in case I, I, I lose you, let me go ahead and give you a key statement that will help anchor the rest of our lesson. Here it is. Never, never confuse God's silence with God's absence. Let me say that again. Never confuse God's silence with God's absence. Because we will find that during those 400 years, God may have been silent, but he was not absent. All right, since you have your Bibles open to Malachi, let me read a couple of verses uh, from the book because before God goes silent, he gives a very important fact that he wanted people to keep in mind. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, an oracle, <clears throat> the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, listen, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, obviously, the people didn't know that mankind was about to be plunged into 400 years of silence, but God did. And so it just seems that he wanted to embed something in their hearts. He said, I have loved you. Now, I know today because some churches preach exclusively about the, the love of God and, you know, he will always love you and some like to point out that there's nothing you can do to make him love you less, which is true. But sometimes churches rarely ever mention the other side, the justice of God. 
And so what happens is that we pastors, and, and, and I'm even guilty of this at times, I think, is we're almost hesitant to talk about the love of God because we don't want to be labeled as one of those pastors that sh- just sugarcoats everything. But don't ever forget that God loves you. He loves you more than you will ever understand. And God, knowing that there would be 400 years of silence, took this opportunity to say, regardless of what happens, regardless of the silence, regardless of the darkness, I love you, I love you, I love you. Which, by the way, God is saying the same thing to you today. Regardless of what you're facing, regardless of the silence that you may be feeling from God right now, don't forget that God has loved you. He still loves you today. He will love you in the future. He loves you when you're good, bad, or ugly. He loves you. That's Malachi 1, 1 and 2. Four short chapters later, without warning, Malachi puts down his quill signaling the end of the Old Testament and there's silence. So let's look at our first question. What did God do over the next 400 years of silence? Since during this time period, as I said, there's no recorded word from the Lord. There are no messages from the prophets of God. I want to take you to some history, some actual history, some some factual history. And I want to mention several historical events that took place during those 400 years of silence that will give us some insight into what God was doing. Now to set things up, during this period of time when when the Old Testament was coming to an end, there was a world power shift going on. Babylon was fading from power. Persia was coming to the forefront. And in 359 B.C., there was a leader that came to prominence from Macedonia, the, the area that we now know as Greece, which... Incidentally, Philip of, of Macedon was right in the area where Gabe and Erica Waite served there in the country of Albania. He was right in that area. Philip of Macedon's greatest claim uh, to, to, to fame, and, and, and even though you, m- many of us don't know his name unless you're into history, but he did unify the islands of Greece. Um, but his greatest claim to fame is that he fathered a son that did become a household name. His name was Alexander the Great. Now, when Alexander the Great appeared on the world stage, it it became evident that he was skilled as no other in, in military strategy. In fact, historians say the world had not seen a military leader or military strategist like him. Even today, some say that Alexander the Great was perhaps the, the greatest military strategist ever. But shortly after, Alexander the Great stepped onto the world scene at the age of 20. He decided to take on the the powerful Persian Empire. And and according to the historian Josephus, Alexander the Great led his armies uh, and and basically he smashed the Persian Empire. I mean, he, he, he took them on and took them down. And... Uh, So it appeared that Alexander the Great would rule the world for for many years to come. Well, I I was studying some of this history this past week, but a year after that historic battle that that, that took place, that took down the Persian Empire, according to, to the historian Josephus, Alexander the Great led his armies down into Syria towards Egypt. On the way, here's what he planned to do, lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. 
Well, as his army approached the city, the Jews in Jerusalem found out and knew they were in trouble. So the high priest at that time, who was a godly older man by the name of Jadua, or Jadua, you, you find his name three times in the book of Nehemiah, but Jadua took the writings of the prophet Daniel, accompanied by a host of other priests dressed in white garments, and met Alexander the Great some distance away from the city of Jerusalem. And this is fascinating. And Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us that when Alexander met Jadua, met Jadua, he told the high priest that he had had a vision the night before in which God had shown him an old man robed in a white garment, and this man would show him something of great significance. And according to the account that Josephus gives, the high priest then opened the prophecies of Daniel, read him the prophecies in Daniel chapter 11, that in some ways seemed to have been partially fulfilled by Alexander himself. And H.A. Ironside, in his book, The 400 Silent Years, shows the similarities of Daniel 11, what Alexander had done. And, but all of that to say that Alexander was so impacted by his meeting with the high priest Jadua that he promised he would save Jerusalem from siege, sent the high priest back with honors. Well, things began to go downhill from there, uh, for Alexander the Great. He began, began drinking. Some reports say that he drank himself to death. Other reports say that he came down with a disease such as malaria or typhoid fever. But on June 10th, 323 B.C., at the very young age of 33, Alexander the Great died. But before he died, he reportedly made this very famous statement that we've all heard. The statement was witnessed by, by a man named Plutarch, Plutarch said that Alexander the Great wept simply because there were no more worlds to conquer. But the point I want to make is that while Alexander the Great was still alive, he did some very significant things that showed us that God, as God was silent during this period of time, he was not absent. And he made some very important decisions that impacted the world for centuries to come. And the one decision that I want to mention is that as he conquered nation after nation, he said, I want everyone in these nations that I've conquered, which was pretty much the known world at that time, he said, I want them to speak a common language. Um, if you remember from the, ta- uh, the days of the Tower of Babel, the, the nations had been plunged into different languages. Remember that, that biblical history? But Alexander the Great wanted all the nations that he conquered to be unified by a common language. He felt it would bring strength to his kingdom, and and he was right. Because when when a country is divided by many different languages, it weakens the unity and the strength of the country. I I think of the country of India, India, the different times that I visited there. Even the local citizens are frustrated by the different languages. And according to an article that I read, there are over 100 official languages. But when you throw in the different dialects there, along with the different languages... That takes the number up to 19,500 in the country. And, and so we found out that you can drive 30 miles there in India and you're in another language or dialect, uh, which makes it so difficult for even the locals. So Alexander the Great said, I want all the countries that I've conquered to speak a common language and, and listen to what language he wanted that to be. He, he wanted everyone to be able to understand as well as speak the language known as Koine Greek. Now, Koine Greek and, and Greek are, 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 are two different, are, are significantly different. There are some similarities, but vastly different as well. 
But in a moment, I want to tell you why it was so significant for Alexander to make this decision and order the common language of Koine Greek. And, and, and by the way, maybe this wasn't his decision alone. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. So when it appeared that God was silent, he was not absent. He was working and directing the heart of the most powerful man in the world. Well, something else significant took place. Around 40 years passed. And in 284 B.C. in Egypt, a group of 70 men were appointed to translate for the very first time the Hebrew Scriptures, or we call that the Old Testament, at least part of the Old Testament, translate to another language. And so so they took these Hebrew Scriptures book by book and translated them into what language do you think? Koine Greek. And by the way, that translation was called a Septuagint, which means 70 because of the number of translators, um, which is then a Greek translation of the Hebrew, Hebrew Scriptures. So, so keep this in mind. Alexander the Great wanted the common language to be Koine Greek. Forty years later, the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into Koine Greek. Well, something else took place that was fascinating. Fast forward another 250 years, and I'm just hitting some highlights here, but the Roman Empire appeared on the world scene, and they did many things, some really bad, but some good. There were two good things that they did that were especially significant for our discussion today. One was that the Romans, and we we heard about that just a little bit in, in our Advent reading, but the Romans created a Roman military piece called Pax Romana. And this military piece allowed for people to travel with greater a greater sense of security and safety. It, it had been dangerous for people to travel. And so they went about trying to make travel safer. But the second thing that the Romans did was to create a vastly improved and reliable road and transportation system. The roads were horrible. But the Romans said, we've got to get a good, we've got to get a good road system. So not only could people travel safely, but they could also travel farther and faster. And we could keep on going with more historical events, but within these 400 years of silence, these four things, the establishment of the common language of Koine Greek, the Old Testament scriptures being translated into Koine Greek, the Pax Romana, or, or the Roman peace that allowed you to travel safely, and then the improved transportation system that allowed you to travel farther clearly showed us that God's silence was not God's absence. Now, how do these things relate to the question, what was God doing in the silence? Well, to answer this, uh, let me just answer it with an illustration. We've all been to a play or a drama before, and when it comes to the end of Act 1 or whatever, the curtain goes down and they announce that there will be a brief 20-minute intermission. We'll go out in the lobby, we line up and get some popcorn and Diet Coke. After a few minutes, everybody makes their way back into the auditorium, ready for Act 2. The lights go down, the curtains go up, Act 2 begins. Now, while we were out in the lobby getting uh, popcorn and Coke, um, what was happening behind the scenes? Well, in many cases, they were rearranging the set, moving props around, getting the stage ready for Act Two. 
And in a sense, that's exactly what God was doing during the 400 years of silence. As the curtain came down at the end of the book of Malachi, signaling the end of the Old Testament, God took the next 400 years and began to rearrange the world's stage so that it would be perfectly positioned to welcome the coming of Jesus and spread the message of His grace and salvation and forgiveness of sins to the entire world. And let me show you how. Because of those things that we mentioned that took place during those 400 years of silence, you know, the common language of the translation of the Old Testament scriptures, safe travel, good road system, as the curtain began to rise in the book of Matthew, the world now looked like this. A great part of the known world in and around the area of Palestine understood and even to some degree spoke the language of Koine Greek. And this is so cool. <laughs> Do you know what language the New Testament was written in? So, surprise, it wasn't English. And, and surprise, it wasn't even in the King James Version. The New Testament was originally written in, can you guess what language? Koine Greek. Which means that when Jesus commissioned his followers to go as missionaries to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, this means that the scriptures could be understood by most people. But it gets better. After Jesus was born and lived a life that pointed us to our Heavenly Father, and then he died and on the cross for our sins, he was raised from the dead, and 40 days later ascended into heaven. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is given, and the early church experiences revival, and they can't keep silent. They take the message of Jesus. It spreads far and wide. Christianity explodes with what they call exponential growth all across the world. And here's the question. How was the message of Jesus able to be spread to so many places in such a short period of time. Well, partially it goes back to Alexander the Great creating a common language. And then the Hebrew Scriptures being translated into Koine Greek. And then the Romans creating a vast road system with Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And, and all of these things here enable Jesus' followers to take the message of Jesus further, further, faster, and faster. Now, my point in all of this is that when the Old Testament came to a screeching halt, none of this would have been logistically possible. First, there was the language barrier. that The Tower of Babel had complicated things, com complicated communication. Secondly, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and not many people understood that. And, and thirdly, traveling was dangerous and unadvisable. Fourthly, the road system was limited and took a long time to get anywhere. But as the curtain comes down in Malachi chapter 4... God begins to go to work, and in silence, behind the scenes, he rearranges the world's stage so that when the curtain comes up 400 years later, at the beginning of the New Testament, the world is perfectly positioned for the birth and the message of Jesus Christ. But you don't have to take my word for it. We have an eyewitness account who put all of these pieces together in that day. And this is what this eyewitness named Paul said, Galatians 4, 4. But when the time, when the right time came, that's New Living Translation or King James Version. But when the fullness of time was come. Or the NIV says, but when the time had fully come. But, but at the perfect time, after the stage had been rearranged during those 400 years of silence, 
when the fullness of time had come, here's what it says, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sonship. That's what God was doing during the 400 years of silence. Which helps us to at least partially answer the second question of what should we be doing during our own personal times of silence. We don't like this, but many times God is rearranging the stage for us. He's changing circumstances. He's moving the hearts of men and women. He's directing presidents and rulers, even if they're wicked. I I mean, if, if God can use Alexander the Great... Don't you think he can use our politicians in Washington today? Seems impossible, but it's not. God's shaping kingdoms. He's shifting props around on planet Earth. And I can't tell you how God's working will look in your life. I can't tell you when the curtain will go up and when you will hear God's voice and feel God's presence again. But I can tell you this, when you feel God is silent and absent, you need to know that God can be trusted and at just the right time, in the fullness of time, the curtain will rise and you will be perfectly positioned to accomplish His will for your life. So how does that play out in your day tomorrow? Well, let me tell you how it plays out in mine. And just so you know, without making a big deal about it, I've I've been going through one of those seasons of silence in my own life. And you don't need to come to me and prophesy over me and say, well, here's what I see in your life and the reason you're in this season of silence. No, I've been here before. This isn't the first time, probably won't be the last time. But as God seems silent and sometimes even absent, tomorrow, as usual, I will get up and I'll take my shower. I know the office staff is grateful for that. After my shower, I'll go into my prayer time. I will seek God. I'll pray for my family. I'll pray for some of you. Pray for those of you that I know of that are sick. I'll try to pray for the missionaries. I'll pray for some lost people. I always like to pray that God would give me wisdom. But then after my prayer time, I I will open up His Word and ask Him through His Word to speak to me and teach me and give me guidance for the day. After that, I'll go to the office. Long before anyone else gets here, I'll try to begin my work and study and be here to serve God and serve people as He leads throughout the day. And, And here's what I've discovered. Even when it seems as if God has gone silent on me? And even when it seems as if God is absent from me, if I go into each day trusting His presence, I have found that invariably in some way throughout the day, God will show up. Maybe He will show up through the words of a song. Maybe He will show up through the words of Scripture. 
Maybe he will show up through the words of one of our staff members. Maybe he will show up through some of you. Maybe it will be through a beautiful sunrise or a sunset. Oftentimes, he even shows up through a check in my spirit, convicting me of a wrong attitude or a wrong action. But I found that even during my times of silence, if I trust God with his presence, he will invariably, somehow, some way, at some point in my day, show up and remind me that God is really with me. I will never leave you nor forsake you, is what the scripture says. You know, the Christmas story says it so well. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. God is with us. And so when life doesn't make sense, When we go through those seasons of silent nights, not just a silent night, but a whole bunch of silent nights, this one thing I know is that the 400 years of silence leading up to that very first Christmas tells us that you can trust God. Again, he used a wicked man by the name of Alexander the Great. He used an evil empire of the Romans to help move heaven and earth together to bring the message of forgiveness and the message of his presence to us. So, in your silent moments, when you feel so far from God, no, God may be silent, but he's not absent. Emmanuel, God is with us. So I don't know, uh, I don't know maybe who is going through a season of silence today. If you are, could you just trust God? He'll show up. He'll show up. And as we pray, even though maybe you feel a silence here, could you just thank God that he's with you? Would you want to just stand right now and let's just worship him, thanking him for his faithfulness, his goodness, his presence? Lord, we want to thank you that whenever we, uh, sometimes we're immature and God, we don't feel you and we abandon you. But thank you, Father, that during those moments of silence, just because of what happened during the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New, Lord, we can be assured that you're there. You're always there. Lord, I specifically want to pray for those that are in this building or maybe watching online or maybe listening on the radio that are going through just that silence. They're discouraged. They, they just haven't maybe felt the closeness of your presence for a long time. God, I pray that you would just encourage them right now. Lord, help them to know that you can be trusted. Lord, thank you that in those moments whenever life doesn't make sense, you're there. Lord, in those moments of tragedy, you're there. Lord, in those moments when 
Maybe we think that uh, you've abandoned us. You're there. And so God, as we, as we leave this room today, let us trust your presence. And God, let us be faithful to you because one day you will break that silence. So Lord, let us be faithful to you. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for just the insight that uh, you've given uh, us into some of the things that maybe we didn't understand initially. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.